The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. Coming up, we discuss the dramatic disqualifications for Mercedes and Ferrari in Austin, ask whether the Silver Arrows car updates look promising, and tackle your questions on batteries and recycling. We're one race into an F1 triple header, so what better time for another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. And it's a very timely one given goings-on in the United States Grand Prix, the fallout of which I'm sure will be a big talking point in Mexico in the coming days. I'm your host, Ed Straw, but the man who really matters on this podcast is Gary Anderson, a veritable fount of knowledge about motorsport tech, and who has been there and done that again and again over his half-century in the industry. Well, Gary, how was the Austin weekend for you? Well, it's a great track. I enjoy that, you know, that first section, a bit like Zuzuka, Silverstone, whatever. You know, it's a it's a demanding part of tra- a part of the track. Um, anything fast is always good. The drivers like that part of it, but it it has got a bit bumpy. Um, it's it's always been a bit bumpy, but it has got more bumpy, I think. But is that wrong? You know, we we shouldn't have to race on a billiard table. Um, it's just about you know making the car cope with the bumps. I think in the end of the day, most people did. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's a tough circuit. It was a good race, and uh, it was a, a close fought battle. I think as well, which is always good. Yeah, certainly made for an interesting race, and obviously mention of the bumps there. I think hints at what might be your choice of topic for the first part of this podcast. I would imagine you want to talk about the planks, given the exclusion of Charles Leclerc and, and Lewis Hamilton. So there's lots to get into there, not least actually what this wooden plank is, because. It sounds very simple, but it's it's a little bit more than a, a load of wood bolted to the bottom of the car, even though it is, I guess, <laughs> in substance that. Yes, it's it's a bit more than a plank, but basically it's been called a plank forever. It's it's um, thirty centimeters wide, um, and it goes from the um, I think it's the center line of the front tire to the center line of the rear tire, or or else the trailing edge of the front tire to the center line of the rear tire. Anyway, it's it's basically the length of the car underneath it. Um, and it was put there in 1994 after Ayrton Senna's accident because it was believed at that point in time that after a safety car interlude with in the race there at Imola that the tyre pressures had dropped and that basically Senna's car was bottoming quite hard through Tamborella and that's what shot him off the road. Um, and obviously the end result was that we lost one of the greatest drivers of all time. So it was put there as a... Um, something to dissuade you from running the cars too low um, because at that point in time, actually, you know, the tracks were actually getting damaged by the cars running too low. They were they were bottoming out quite hard and, uh, and you know, cutting grooves in the track, I suppose you might call it. So the, the piece of wood underneath was deemed to be uh, fragile enough to mean that you had to raise the car. And the regulations were that if you wore it down, it was 10 millimetres thick, if you wore it down more than a millimetre, um, and or weighed less than X, um, which was, I think it was like something like 5%, then, um, you know, you, it was illegal. Compared, that's the weight compared to a new one. And, and it knocked off it knocked off a bit of downforce as well, didn't it? Because those were, that was still when it was flat bottom floors at the start of that season before the steps came in. So I guess there was a secondary thing as well just to uh, um, square that. Yeah, it, it did raise the ride height by 10 millimetres, which in theory knocked off a bit of downforce. But, you know, that was... Um, that was just about, you know, finding that downforce again. You could do that, but the reality of it was that, you, you know, you couldn't run the car quite as low for as long uh, or you'd damage the plank. And then 
And then people started to get, you know, a bit ambitious with the ride height. And I think it was Michael Schumacher lost, got thrown out of uh, Spa. And that was because just the front corner of the plank was worn quite dramatically, much to much less than nine millimeters. Um, but it was a small area. So at that point in time, then the FIA allowed you to start to put skids on the bottom of it. Um, and originally the skids were sort of made of tungsten, so, which is quite hard. And, um, you know, they were used as retaining washers, I think they were called. Um, and uh, basically, it, you know, it sort of was a circle of events. We had a, a, a system put on the car to reduce, to make sure the right height had to be held higher. And then suddenly we got the skids back on it again. And unfortunately, those skids started falling off. Um, and, you know, they were quite heavy for the size of them. So they were flying through the air was not a great thing with the marshals at the, at the sides of the track. So once again, then the regulations changed and the skids got made out of a lighter weight material and then and then they were asked to be made out of titanium, so they made sparks for night races. And So the circle of events happened over over time that we've ended up with a what's called a plank on the car, which is a high-density wood. It's a bit like, you know, your your floorboarding that you have in your you know your kitchen or whatever. It's, it's a very hard, high-density, compressed uh, wood pulp with a lot of resin in it. So it, it doesn't wear easily, but it does wear. Um, but again, the skids, you know, they they take most of the wear. And now currently the, 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 the plank thickness is actually measured around some of those skids. There's a hole there that, that basically on the FIA bridge of doom, as we call it, the way bridge and the, the, um, the legality measuring device that the FIA have, there's rams come up and they go through these 50 millimeter holes that's in the, in the plank. Make sure that the the measuring bridge is at the reference plane of the car. So zero is the reference plane of the car, which is at the top of the the uh, plank as such. So it's all got quite complicated around something that was a good idea at the time, and and really it probably needs a little bit of a look at um, because it's thirty years old now nearly. So it might need a little bit of a look at, but but it was quite a a cheap and simple thing to do and put on the bottom of the car at the time. But as I say, it's uh, it's just got to this point now where it's actually quite difficult to wear that wear it the way that obviously Mercedes and and uh, Ferrari had done, because we see the cars create lots of sparks. But um, at the end of the day, these ground effect cars want to run low, low is performance. You know, you want to get there as best you can. So yeah, circle of events that send up where we are. And I was interested to see that it was too big teams that suffered the consequences you know normally we you know we, we, we sort of think that the small teams pay a, pay a price to um to make sure that it's seen that the FIA do their job properly but it's actually two big teams this and, and good position good results that were thrown out the window so um yeah that was impressive I think Joe Bauer did a good job there and I would pat him on the back for having the been brave enough to make that all happen and, and see it through yeah they, they only tested the front the top four cars, I think, well, the top four different cars. So McLaren were also tested for that, and so were Red Bull Verstappen's car. So there's a bit of pot luck in it in terms of whether you're checked for that. But yeah, um, yeah, it is. Uh, it, it is interesting to speculate how many may have been running illegally um, if they've been checked. Yeah, well, you know, in theory, the FIA have a, a software program that basically they hit a button at the end of the race, and it randomly picks. I think it's six cars. Um, to test for for very for six things, you know, the, the, it's very funny the regulations because it's, it's it says at the beginning of the regulations it's up to the team to make sure the car complies at all times during the event. The FIA supply the equipment that's used to make sure that the car complies, but it's up to the teams to go down to the 
the bridge of doom, as we call it, as I say, and make sure their car complies. And then at the end of any session, um, some cars are checked, especially qualifying and especially the race. The weights of the cars are checked randomly because obviously that's a potential performance enhancer. So on the way into the pits, the weights of the cars checked. Um, but the this this software program is supposed to just select randomly some cars. Um, it's probably biased towards the, the front end of the grid. Um, and it selects the things that you check. Now, that, from my point of view, is a, is a good way of doing it. But I do think that, you know, that, it should that should change a little bit. My suggestion would be that the the point scoring cars are all checked for X performance enhancing um, things, i.e., rear wing flexing, uh, plank wear, front wing flex, or something. You know, there, there's a, there's a random amount of things that makes the car go faster in a given a given at a given weekend. And if the FIA were to ask the teams, please give me your list of ten of your what you think is the the easiest performance. Um, enhancing things on the car that should be checked post qualifying and post uh, the race for the points scoring or the top 10 cars in qualifying um, and then they just go law of averages whoever says the most you know if, if it's a rear wing flex or if it's a plank or if it's the, the front wing rotation or flexing you know then that gives them a list of the things that will be checked and at all points in t- all races and all tests and all the qualifying those things are checked on the point scoring cars. And if two cars like this weekend get thrown out, then the next two cars that come into the into the point scoring get checked as well for the same thing. So you know that you know anything that you can enhance the performance with quickly during qualifying or during the race, not a major design item, but just a, you know how you run the car, that that gets checked. And in the end, uh, you end up you know the the result is all equalised. And basically, you can't check everything, but you could check the, the, the top. You could check six, let's say, six things or something on each car, quite happily, and get the end result out like two hours after the race, which is what I think happens. So there's a way to change it now that something's happened, but somebody needs to want to change it. Yeah, sensible idea. At the very least, you'd think that once a car has been found illegal, you check the sister car just as a matter of course. But that's not what it is. So the procedures were correct here, but maybe there's a better way of doing it. But are you surprised to see? Mercedes and Ferrari falling foul of this. It's very rare people get done for plank wear. Obviously, they blame the practice running or the lack of practice running for the mistake. It's an excusable mistake. How did they get it so wrong? No, it's, it's not an excusable mistake at all. I think it's one of those sort of situations. It's the same for all the teams. If the practice sessions are X, that's what they are for everybody. So it's up to the team individually to cope with that. And or if the circuit's bumpy, it's up to the team individually to cope with that. Now, there's two ways of doing this. You either go to a circuit with the car at its optimum ride height and you see what happens and you may have to raise it a bit or you go to the, the circuit with the car um, a bit higher. You know, you're, you're only talking, you know, maybe two millimetres at the front and four millimetres at the rear higher than uh, than the optimum and you lower the car. And if you run out of time, for example, because, you know, a short practice session or it rains or you can't get the data in time then at least you're on the safe side you might have a performance penalty but you you know you don't have to push the envelope all the time if you can if you can and you can optimize everything because you've got enough time enough running enough data enough knowledge then fine but at the end of the day you've got this situation where you know the cars now have accelerometers on them um, because of the the porpoising and the bouncing last year so they've always had accelerometers but now they're specific for the for the car hitting the ground 
and and basically that data is there as well. So I'm sure you could build a, a little something that would determine the potential of the plank wear, you know, how, how hard the car's hitting the ground, because that will be a G-level, vertical G-level, and for how long on a lap. And, you know, out of, through time, you will be able to come up with something, an algorithm that will tell you, well, actually, you better put a bit of priority into the plank situation here, because, you know, this is a bit near the mark. And obviously, then, there's the measurements, and, you know, that takes time. You, you've got to go and run for 10 laps and measure the plank and see what the wear's like, et cetera, et cetera. So that would happen you know, in detail at the end of each session. And you only had one session in Austin. But I think there's there's a there's something there with the accelerometer to use that would give you the information. And, you know, raising the car will lose performance. And I think we saw that with a few cars this, this weekend. Their performance wasn't where we thought they might be. But they ended up taking the points that they earned at the end of the, at the, end of the race. So um, you've got to comply with the regulations. As I say, the thing is, it's the same for everybody. Can you speculate as to what advantage may have been gained from running the car illegally i know it's very difficult with the lack of information we've got about exactly what the wear pattern was etc but could it gain you significant advantage i think it's one of those things that's quite difficult because i'm pretty sure that a lot of the wear would have taken place early in the race um, when the car was fairly heavy of fuel um you know it's, it's one of those sort of situations as the car gets lighter then the ride height will increase slightly it's, it's a small amount but it is you know Tenths, multiple tenths of millimeters, so it will increase a bit, and the fact the planks worn. So I think if you had an advantage, it would be late in the race because the car wouldn't be hitting the ground so hard that you would sort of get that advantage um, because your car is running lower and it's not bottoming so hard. So then you would get a little bit of advantage. I mean, if you are talking about a, you know really on a on a good lap with fast corners, you're talking you know two tenths of a second probably maximum. It's not you know it's not a make or break. But it's two tenths of a second. Two tenths of a second are pretty hard to find. So, uh, I, you know, I think it's justifiable that there is a regulation to control this. Um, but but it's just making sure that you control it fair and square for everybody. Um, it's the team's responsibility. So, you know, no matter what Toto Wolf says, you know, uh, and or um, the Ferrari group say, it's, you know, it's the team's responsibility. They need to be on top of that situation. And they being a big team should be on top of it much, much better than a team like Williams or Haas or whatever. But that's because, you know, they're pushing the envelope to try to catch up with Red Bull. And and that's what happens. You know, you push the envelope, you get more performance out of the car being a bit lower and the track's a bit bumpier than you thought and you don't get all the laps you wanted to make, to make sure you get the running and measure it properly and, and then you, you suffer the consequences. Yeah, I guess the compounding factor, Austin, is the fact that the bumps seem to change almost on a yearly basis because of the the way the track's built, so uh, the surface it's on. So, yeah, I guess there's an extra factor that tripped them up. But, yeah, realistically, as soon as they were picked up for it, they were always going to be excluded because there's really no excuse, as you explained, and it's down to you to prove that you're running the car illegally at all times. Let's get on to our main topic now, Gary, because we had some upgrades in Austin. The Mercedes one was particularly interesting because James Allison, the technical director, said it was a bellwether for their 24 progress. So what did you see of the Mercedes upgrades and are you confident they're going in the right direction? Well, I think we need to look back a long way. I suppose we'll go back to to, uh, the beginning of 2022 when really interestingly they had very little detail on that 
front corner of the floor detail, the the edge of the floor there. And as time's gone past, they've they've headed into the same sort of path as everybody else, where they're you know getting the the turning vanes underneath the car to exit that flow that's going in underneath the, the leading edge of the floor using that exit flow then to set up the vortices that seals the floor further rearwards and stops them from having to generate such a mechanical seal by lowering the car into the ground. Now, it's still important to lower the car into the ground, but there's a limit. And when you've got that aerodynamic seal down the side of the car, it's it's much more cushioned than a, than a mechanical seal. So, yes, I think they're going in the right direction. I think they're obviously hindered by the geometry of maybe the chassis the width of the chassis underneath or the width of the fuel tank or something there that um, hinders them from exploiting it to a maximum. Um, but, you know, as uh, as they said, um, it's one of those things we're looking at next year to try to make sure that we're going the right direction. And no matter what team you are, you want to get confidence in the fact that the decisions you're making over the winter for the new car or decisions you're making now for the new car are in the direction of performance. So, the one thing it's still uh, I'm still a bit confused with is the the radiator intake. It a seems to be bigger in area than definitely the Red Bull and than, than a lot of others. It's obviously a very different concept, very different shape, more like the the old philosophy of the the up to 2022 cars, you know, 2021, 20 and 21 cars, the shape of a triangular shape. Um, they haven't really bought into this letterbox shape, getting it as high as possible, maximising the, the undercut. And again, that's probably because of the geometry of stuff underneath it and the crash, the impact structures. So I think, you know, between now and the beginning of next season, um, we will we will see a very visual, visually a very different Mercedes coming out to the, to the first test next year. If we don't, then basically they've learned nothing all year long because... As you as you know, with everybody, it's one of those situations where you um, you have a, a car that you start the season with, and you can only work really on that car. You can only improve that package. So if you run out of uh, development direction and or return from your development, like you know in the wind tunnel, if it doesn't start to respond, or if it stops responding, then basically you're 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 down the wrong path. Um, and changing the concept is very difficult, as Mercedes are finding right now. You know, they they have a team that's basically there to win races. Um, that's what they do. That's what they should be doing. They've done it for many, many years. And the last two years, they've not shown that that uh, that team philosophy. Um, so they need to think about it a little bit and make sure they, they start next season with a package that A, gives them a return on development, and B, puts them in a better position to start the season with. Does that exclusion raise any questions about this upgrade? Obviously, I guess it's a question of it working and it correlating more than the pure performance that's the significant thing. So I would imagine that's fairly trivial in terms of evaluating it and they can that, that those two things are kind of distinct. So if they're happy with this working, that's positive. Yes, it is. It is positive. I mean, the, the whole philosophy seemed to be uh, it give Lewis a bit more confidence. Um, I must admit that I'm a bit surprised that suddenly we're seeing this difference between Lewis and, and George Russell. You know, that, that that was sort of fairly black and white, that George was was, was really not at the races in Austin. Um, and the fact that at the end of the race, you know, Max was struggling a bit with brakes or some, brake problems of some sort, but we had Lewis Hamilton, in theory, dicing with, uh, with Max Verstappen. 
and we had George Russell Dyson with Sergio Perez. Um, and that, that sort of says the wrong thing because we all, we all talk a lot about Sergio being lacking a bit of performance against, uh, against Max. And now we saw that with the, uh, with the Mercedes as well. So I know it's probably only just one snapshot in time um, and I'm sure there's, there's better to come, but it's still one snapshot in time. So they need to be careful they don't end up going down this path where they build a one-driver car um, from that data. And that one driver that did well was the one that got thrown out because of the car being too low. So if they, can, if they run the car lower than it theoretically could run, then you know the performance, the underneath the underfloor performance of the car would be better, as long as it wasn't bottoming through fast corners and and uh, you know riding on the plank and and basically snapping on the oversteer, then they would have got some better performance out of it for a while. So it could it could sort of influence your decisions a little bit. It would make you think about it and make sure that you look at uh, George's car, who you know maybe the plank in George's car was worn as well. We don't know that. But they will be looking very closely at that and saying, well, George is off the pace and his plank's okay. Lewis was really on the pace and his plank was worn. You know, we have to evaluate that in the wind tunnel. And we'll, we'll look at seeing what a, a millimetre ride height makes, how much difference it makes. And, and it will make a significant difference. So, you know, um, yeah, you would, it would add into the confusion equation, I suppose you might call it, uh, for the direction of the new developments. And there's still a bit for them to learn about it in the real world, just the one free practice session. So everyone who had upgrades struggled a little bit to fettle them because of that, which brings us on actually to Aston Martin, who also had a fairly significant upgrade, but they had a bit of a nightmare with it, all because of the problems they had on uh, on on Friday. Perhaps we should start there because they had a brake issue where they had excess blanking and then they had brake overheating and in Stroll's case, it damaged the braking internals. How do you get that so badly wrong? Because blanking is very perhaps worth explaining as well. It's quite a simple thing, and it's quite a well-known car. So, how do you get that so wrong? Yeah, well, I mean, the brakes are, are very critical in these cars, um, and it's based on the fact that the front brakes is all it's all um, normal brake pad and disc uh, retardation. It's carbon carbon brakes, uh, carbon carbon disc, and carbon carbon pads. On the, on the rear of the car, it's the carbon-carbon disc and carbon-carbon pads, but they're quite a lot smaller. And basically, a lot of the rear tar- retardation is done by, by charging up the battery, the, the ERS recharge system. So you have a balancing act between the two as to what pressure you put on the brake pedal as to how much of the rear brakes is done through the, the charging system and how much is done through the, the, the braking system. But on the front, it's always the braking system. And the the discs are quite critical because you you want to be able to make sure the disc it doesn't the brakes don't snatch. So you have to keep them hot enough, which needs to be you know and there's just numbers from the top of my head. Um, it needs to be above sort of three hundred and sixty degrees centigrade the disc and the pad. If it's below that, it will it, the brakes will be inefficient, but then they'll snatch. Um, and you can go up to you know maybe a thousand degrees. And once you get above that, the 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 uh, wear rate increases dramatically. So you want to keep it in that window of probably you know 400 degrees to 900 degrees, which sounds easy, but you're putting in some massive massive energy into the brakes to stop the car, all on the car on, on the carbon front discs. And if you underestimate it um, and have too much cooling in there to to basically get the the discs up to temperature and keep them up to temperature, it's very easy to go over the top and, and overheat them. You know, again, it's like the ride height. It's better to start with the discs a little bit too cool and, and have them um, snappy and, and um, 
you know, going through that, that lower heat range than having them too hot and a lot of wear. So I think they just started to, they, they, in Austin, went the wrong direction on the front brakes and, and suddenly they were, they were struggling with it. On the rears, it's not so dramatic because, as I say, the the uh, the carbon carbon part is much smaller. It's a lot less um, a lot less percentage of the braking is done through that. But it is a quite a complicated system. But you know, it's it's where do you start? You should start you should start on the safe side with everything. Um, that can hurt your performance that little bit because the more airflow you use to cool the brakes or cool the engine, um, you know, the less airflow you have left for for to generate downforce. So there is a performance penalty with any cooling on, that's required on the car. And obviously, Austin got it a bit wrong. It's strange they got it a bit wrong because, you know, they've all been to Austin before. But, you know, this year, it, uh, it just seemed to catch them out. Yeah, it was quite warm and quite humid, but nothing we haven't seen before in Austin. It can be a very variable weekend, this one. It's been freezing here in the past. Sometimes it's tipping with rain, sometimes it's hot and humid. So you can get just about anything. But that Aston upgrade, I don't want to look at the detail as such, but obviously they had floor changes, floor edges, the diffuser, the engine cover, the beam wing. And they said all of this was about increasing the uh, the, the floor loading and modifying the underside local flow conditions. But obviously, they didn't get to test that properly in FP1. They were going to back-to-back the, the, the old and the new package. And then they ran both cars on the new package, but they broke part for me so that they could change the setup. And then they had Stroll running the new spec, Alonso running the old spec to effectively replicate that FB1 lost back-to-back. Do you think that was quite a sensible approach from them? Um, it was quite a sensible approach, I believe. Um, but if you look at, from what we know, um, the, there wasn't much difference in the two of them, to be honest. You know, I think we've got the situation where we, we know that Alonso is a little bit quicker, a, a more uh, more sort of determined race driver, I think, than, 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 um, than Stroll. There's that little bit in it. But during the race, you know, the two of them were nip and tuck with each other as such. Um, you know, there was no big, no big shakes. It wasn't as though Alonso rushed off into the distance or, or Stroll rushed off into the distance and left Alonso behind. So doing that, yeah, can be, can be something, but um, it can give you a lot more information, a lot more data. But the, the big thing is that you would expect your, your better package uh, to, to be the better package. So the fact that you know, Stroll run the, the new package and, and um, Alonso run the old package is a bit strange because you think you put your eggs in the right basket and say, right, okay, the new package in theory is faster. Let's make let's put Alonso on that because if it is better, it, he will be able to rush off into the distance and, and score some good points. If it's not better and, and Lance Stroll is ahead of him, then for sure the new package is not better than the old one. So I think I, I agree with them doing the back-to-back that they're talking about, but I... Personally, I think they did it the wrong way around. Um, and that's that's going to be uh, add a little bit more confusion to them, to be honest, for the future. Because, you know, you're three races now in a row. You don't have much time to, to, to make these big decisions. And it's all about confidence. Again, like Mercedes, it's all about confidence for next year. So the last thing you need to do is is throw a spanner in the works that sort of confuse the issue a bit more. Do you, do you go with that new direction, that new route for next year's car or... Or do you step back a bit and start again? Because, you know, whether you like it or whether you don't, Mercedes, um, sorry, McLaren started the season badly and progressively stepped through and, and really got a car now that, you know, is, is a decent car for all occasions. Whereas uh, uh, um, Aston Martin have started the season very strongly 
and uh, step through the season going backwards and really end up now with um, a bit of head scratching to do. Ultimately, the car was quite brisk in the race. Actually, both of them were. Alonso was the quicker. Stroll ultimately finished seventh after the exclusion. So that's encouraging. I guess the bigger picture for Aston Martin is they aren't making the progress they should do. So how, how lost do you think they are? There's, there's clearly something missing, isn't there, in terms of understanding? Yes, there is. Um, and as I say, the, the, you know, for me, the big thing is how you take a package and make it better. Um, obviously, coming in with what they did as a package, they were very, you know, I suppose they were the first team to be Red Bull driven, uh, which isn't, you know, nothing wrong with that because that's, you know, that was the 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 lay of the land at the end of last season. That was the car that was was doing the job, to be honest. Um, but then when you take it that far and you start and get it on its four wheels and all your Red Bull experience from the people you brought in has sort of diminished, then it's up to you as a team to to take it forward. And that you know that that's now on your shoulders as a team, as a group of people. That Aston Martin, it's on their shoulders to develop the car, and it doesn't look like they're doing the best job in the world at doing that. So that again, you know, throws a, a spanner in the works for me. The 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 big thing, as you say there, Ed, that um, you know they were quite brisk in the race, but they were quite brisk in the race, racing against cars that they shouldn't even be near. You know, they started the season racing with Max Verstappen and and Charles Leclerc and Lewis Hamilton at the front. And then now they're racing at the back of the grid with Logan Sargent and, you know, whoever. So they should be quite brisk in that area. You know, their, fir- their first laps, to be honest, you know, they should have ended up in, in point scoring position within five laps or, you know, a little bit more if they had the speed that they could race at the front with. Um, so the the race, although it, they got some points out of it in the end, to me the race didn't show the speed that the car needs to have if it's going to be back to where it was in the earlier part of the season, racing against the big boys. So um, I think, as I say, they need to go back and scratch their head a little bit and see where it's all gone wrong because it has gone wrong. And the worst thing they can do is think that well, actually it was okay. You know, we got seventh, so that's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, it's not pretty good for where they they should be and what they are. It's it's not pretty good. Yeah, very much so. And they've set to fit in the Constructors' Championship. Who'd have thought that early in the season? McLaren are ahead, are ahead of them, and I can't see any way that Aston Martin are going to get that one back in the final for races. We should briefly mention the Haas upgrades as well, because they were also much vaunted. And they also started from the pit lane, having made setup changes. They changed their rear wings on both cars. What did you make of what they did? And was there enough data from the weekend, really, to decide if they'd actually made the gains they hoped? Well, I, uh, you know, it was quite simple. They, I don't know why they would go to a circuit when they know the tyres are critical with a downforce level that puts their cars fastest on the straight, you know, because it, it's, there's no magic in it. You know, you, you've got to throw downforce away to actually end up with a, with a car that's quicker on the straight than anybody else. And if you're qualifying in the late teens and you're fastest on the straight, it's pretty black and white, the reason for that, you know. Now, that can help you in the race because of straight line speed, obviously, in the race, the lap times disappear a little bit they they slow down but they the, the straight line speed will be something that if you can carry into the race so by them backing out of the setup for the race and throwing away the straight line speed and putting more downforce on the car you know they again the decisions they made going to austin were, were the wrong way around you know they should have gone the other way around and uh ran the downforce and then you know maybe reduced it later on but obviously they ran out of time um but i think what it does show between aston martin and haas that that these cars still need to be run on the circuit before you actually really know whether they're they're better or not. There was a time a little while back 
when the cars weren't so critical to the ground and uh, improvements, probably other than the front wing, improvements in the you know barge board areas and diffuser and so forth were pretty black and white improvements. You know, they, they worked on the circuit normally. But um, now it's, they are more critical. So we're seeing a lot less... Um, a lot less developments that, that make the car go faster than we did in the past and a lot smaller developments. That's obviously part of the, the budget cap as well. You know, you can't just spend money willy-nilly. You can't go there with two or three different solutions to the floor, spending, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars just to see if it works. You have to make sure it works nowadays. Um, so, yeah, Haas, you know, this is the first big spend. I think the jury's still out as to whether it's better or worse. I didn't see them being competitive, super competitive in the race. Maybe they were a little bit more stable than we've seen in the past, but starting at the back, they were they couldn't go much worse. Um, so it's hard, very hard to judge yet. So I think we need to see a, a clean weekend, both from Aston and from Haas, before we actually know where these developments have taken them. Yeah, the Haas drivers after the race yesterday, they were a little bit more confident after what they saw on Sunday, but all very, very inconclusive and... <laughs> They'll have the chance to try them out in Mexico this weekend. But of course, high altitude, low density air. So it's not exactly the most representative conditions. But the more you run it, the more you will understand. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. If you're listening to this podcast, you understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, please send us a question to answer on a future episode of this podcast. No topic is off limits, provided it's at least tangentially about tech. It can be F1 today or in the past, something you've always wanted explained. And as I always say, no stupid questions. Sometimes the seemingly simplest questions are the ones that elicit the most interesting answers. You can send an email to podcasts at the race.com. That's podcasts at the hyphen race.com to submit your question, or you can even record a voice note and send it to us, letting us know who you are, and then we can play that out on the show. Our first question today is from Stephen Brophy from Dublin, who was saying, I was wondering how much you can tell us about the battery tech. How many kilowatt hours is the battery and how long does it take to charge A in the garage and B on the track? I'm thinking you can charge it in one lap so a car can do a quality lap, draining the battery, then charge it for a second flying lap. Presumably in quality, you need to drain it out of the final corner for the last bit of lap time. Also, if F1 goes to 100% e-fuel as intended, why bother with batteries anymore? And Stephen also says, love the show, a pleasure to listen to Gary every week. I certainly agree with that. Always enjoy listening to Gary. Yeah, well, <laughs> there you go. A lot of people wouldn't say that, but never mind. Um, right, the battery tech, it's, it's, it's all about sort of... Um Black art, I suppose you might call it. the the basic The basis of the of the the battery, the hybrid um, package, is that it, you know, it, it gives you a chance to have more power than the fuel you're using. That amount of power that you can use from the battery is it's 120 kilowatts. I think it's 32 seconds of a lap. Basically, that's the way it's laid out. So it's an extra 160 um, horsepower for 32 seconds, or you know, you could have half of that. 80 horsepower for 64 seconds 
So at the end of the day, you know, it's a balancing act how much power you want. Now, if we really look at it, we see quite often the the TV will tell us how much full throttle there is on a, on a lap. So whenever you see it's you know, 50 or 60 or 70% full throttle, when you got full throttle, you actually got max power. So you want the battery, you want what you want out of the um, out of the battery pack at the same time because you want more power. Um, there's no point in having you know battery running the battery down whenever you're only in half throttle because you've still got something left. So a lot of the, the the teams will the deployment is what you really sort of work on, and that ends up being is it better to accelerate off the corner so the minute you get the full throttle you have more torque accelerate the cor- off the corner better and get up to a faster speed and then try and maintain that speed right to the you know to the end of the straight or is it better to wait a little bit and then bring in the, the extra torque and get a, a slightly faster speed out of it so i think the consensus of opinion is that you get a better lap time out of accelerating off the corner a bit quicker um and using the battery at that point in time so the the deployment profile will be down to the throttle position that the driver is using and you know then you'll balance that out over the lap as far as getting lap time performance out of how you deploy the battery energy. Now that battery energy that you do deploy, um, as I say, it's 120 kilowatts for, I think it's, let's say, 32 seconds. Um, and you have to charge that back up again. So what we see is that you know during qualifying or practice laps, we see you know a fast lap and then a slow lap, recharge lap as they call it, or we see a, a slow lap out of the pits where they're recharging the battery to peak. So you you know during a qualifying lap you will use all of that 120 kilowatts for for the the 32 seconds during the race that's much much more difficult and you will not get as much um, usage you won't get as much power because you don't you can't recharge it quickly enough so you do a, you know your race laps are all probably half of that uh, energy store and the other you know you're charging it up the other half and I think we saw this weekend on Sky. We saw um, an ERS, you know, level of, of battery charge, and I think it was George Russell was at 40%, and, and Saints was recharging, and he was at 50%. And that's the sort of area the battery will sit in during that um, during that period. So, you know, the driver then would have um, 120 kilowatts or 160 horsepower available to him, but only for 15 or 16 seconds if you've got half the battery pack. So that's why you have to save it up a bit and use it for defence. You know, a, a defense of a, of a position is probably three or four seconds, five seconds of, you know, maximum battery um, dis- discharge. So it's it's all about, you know, the deployment and then the harvesting to keep that deployment at a level. And that's, as I say, why the race, the race lap time is slower than the qualifying lap time, or one of the reasons. Um, so it's just about using it in the best way possible over a given lap. And the points about the batteries, why bother with them? If F1 goes to 100% e-fuel, obviously, the intention is to have synthetic fuel, ideally all created from carbon capture technology, which is very nice on paper, but is the carbon capture technology good enough and scalable and relevant to the rest of the industry? And also, you're still putting that carbon you capture back out into the atmosphere. So, yeah, there's all sorts of questions about that, but as well as that, the batteries are still considered important because they're a major thing for the automotive industry. I know there's all sorts of polemics about this and probably the, the battery 
Howard Cars has been seen as, as a panacea for things. It's certainly a, a big part of the solution, but it's not everything. And that's, I guess, why you want the e-fuel side and the batteries so that F1's exploring uh, multiple different areas. But we could we could debate that one for many hours. So we'll, uh, we'll avoid doing that and moving on now to our next question from Robin McPhee from the Isle of Man. He says, when teams introduce new car parts at races, such as new wings and floors, what happens to the old parts? Can these be reissued, recycled, or are they simply destroyed? How does the constant cycle of new carbon fibre bodywork fit with Formula One's ambition to become net zero by 2030? Yeah, it's um, it's a difficult question to know. I mean, a lot of teams will, will keep the parts, and in two or three years' time when they're outdated, you know, they may sell them off to... Um, to raise money for some charities or you know, raise money for the Christmas party. Um, but it's very seldom you will see uh, the, the carbon being recycled as such. Um, and now McLaren are setting up a system to try to achieve that in some way or another. Um, I'm not quite sure how you go about that because it's obviously a fairly major, major thing to do. It's like you know recycling um, old cars, plastic bottles. You can recycle everything to a certain level to do something. I'm not sure what you can do with it. So it does it does definitely cause concern for this net zero by 2030. Um, you know, it's what you call net zero. How many trees do you have to plant before you're, you're, you're net zero and where do you have to plant them at? Uh, there's a lot of that going on. And I think it just confuses the issue. And even going back to the battery, it's the same deal, you know. We haven't, I don't think we've really realised how, how pollutant the batteries are going to be in the years to come. The amount of batteries that are around now relative to what they were five years ago is enormous so um yes it's, it's always a difficult one to to know what the right solution is for any of these sort of things but you know i always said a long time ago when toyota were in formula one it was one of those sort of things where you know they fired stuff out the car constantly and they must have had a huge skip out the back of the factory be, to put them all in because no, you know 90 percent of the stuff they brought to the track didn't function so it would go out, the, you know, be there used for a couple of races, test it back to back, and then it would go in the skip out the back. So there has to be somewhere a massive pile of used carbon fibre. Um, and the problem is with a composite product, it's not just carbon. It's, um, you know, a composite product is full of metallic inserts, honeycomb, Nomex honeycomb, aluminium honeycomb, whatever. There's lots of stuff in there. So it's not just black and white, simple carbon fibre woven sheet. It's, it's a lot of complicated stuff that's in there. So it's not just a recycling process that you can sort of make nice flat sheets of carbon fibre by re-profiling re them because there's so much stuff in there. So um, it's, it's a difficult one to know what the right solution is for any of that sort of stuff, but developments will go on. And uh, that's one of the reasons, one of the things I said you know, quite a few years ago, from my point of view, I would be trying to limit the amount of developments. I'd be saying, you know, the car you bring to the first race of the season um, is the car you have to race for the next four races. And that includes the front and rear wing, that's it. You know, you can adjust the rear wing, you can adjust the front wing, but that's the specification. And then you can have a an update of certain parts, a list of parts for the next four races, and so on as, as, as you go down the, down the season. And you have one, you know, one joker race maybe in the season where you could say, okay, I'm going to focus on Monaco. I'm going to make a high downforce package for Monaco and that'll be my joker race. Or you could say, I'm going to create a special low downforce package for for Monza, and that'll be my joker race. So, you know, they, I think we have to save the teams from themselves. And I think the budget cap is doing part of that, but it still doesn't stop making making things that don't don't work. 
Um, and I think the only thing you can do is limit the amount of times that the team can change it so it does give the teams more time to optimise a set of, a set of um, componentry before they actually have to press the button to manufacture it. So there's room for manoeuvre there, I think, to, to help control and, and head more towards the, the um, net zero uh, by 2030 but uh, you know the, you'll have to save the teams from themselves because the team's objective is to do whatever it takes to win uh, to make the fastest car possible and to win and if if you don't save them from themselves they'll still continue to do that it's worth noting there's a little bit of experimentation going on with recycled carbon fiber mclaren's just started doing a little bit of that which is interesting but uh yeah it, it is obviously a fundamental challenge that whole balancing the net zero idea with F1 being such a high-consuming endeavour, and of course, there's there's ways you can achieve net zero that are more meaningful than others. Let's uh, put it that way. But to F1's credit, it is working quite hard on that, and that's a, a positive step. But I guess in your position, Gary, you were just pleased when components lasted long enough to actually be retired, rather than coming back in the on the back of a truck having uh, been thrown at the scenery. Yeah, I mean, you never, you never like to see that. The, the big thing is with a lot of these the cars, and, and through my time, was you know the safety factor that you build into a lot of things. Um, you know, everything has to has a certain load to go through it, and the data you gather at the track gives you those loads. And the more data you gather, the better it is. So you can actually design stuff to withstand the loads, and then you you apply on top of that a safety factor. Now, way back whenever we were running competitively, let's say in the latter nineties or whatever. You know, we we needed to put a safety factor, a bigger safety factor on the componentry than, say, Ferrari did because we didn't have the money to keep replacing them. You know, our components, we, we'd sort out the mileage, how many parts you need for a year, and you make sure, you, you, you know, that, that your budget, you spent your budget wisely. But that meant the parts were heavier because they were higher safety factors. A, because we wanted them to go further but b because our data probably wasn't as good as as what ferrari would have but ferrari for example they were changing you know the wishbones and stuff on their car every time the car ran really because they could afford to so they could run lighter componentry um and they weren't so worried about stone chips on it as we were and you know all that sort of stuff with wings so at the end of the day you you can you can have a system where basically you end up spending a lot more money because you push things to the limit that bit more and you have a lot more it's not scrap it's not rubbish because it doesn't work it's just because you get through it quicker and again things like rear wings or front wings you know do you just make keep making more of them and throwing them away whenever they start to get stone chips on them or do you patch up the stone chips so those are big decisions that 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 make it you know uh makes you spend your money wisely and makes you have to over-design the car because you don't have the budget um, and that means your car's going to be a little bit heavier. But as far as um, them coming back on a, on, a, on a crane and a truck with the bits all broken, there's not much you can do about that. You know, motor racing's like that. And unfortunately, you want to go racing and you want to know that the, the drivers are wringing the car's neck and incidents and accidents will happen. So you, that's something you have to live with. Well, thanks very much for those questions and thanks as always, Gary, for your answers. And remember, if anyone has a question about F1 tech, send it to podcast at therace.com. That's podcast at the-race.com and as simple or as complex as you like. Well, thank you very much, Gary, for your insight as always. Always fascinating to be able to listen to you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks after the Brazilian Grand Prix with more from Gary. 
You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.